0: Bitter shuttle has arrived. Vader, this is an unexpected pleasure. We're honored by your presence. Yo, gee, I'll be there to see why your homies ain't working their booties off. I assure you, Lord Vader, my men are working as fast as can. We be seeing if they get this ride going with six foot seven of black staring down I tell you, this station will be operational as planned. Well, if the man don't think so, Can you be cruising down here to check out this ride. The empress coming here? Yeah, and he gonna put a cap in your white ass. We shall double our efforts. Damn straight. And remember, this is CNN.
1: You're listening to 90.7 FM, KALX. I'm Franklin, and this is Berkeley Groks.
0: That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. I'm Charles Lee.
1: Coming up on today's show, we'll be talking about sweat and hippos, strange particles, and female desire.
0: In addition, we'll be joined by Mr. Mark Rose, who will discuss archaeology today.
1: Also, we'll find out what koalas eat.
0: So stay tuned for all of this, plus the world-famous question of the week, coming right up here on Berkeley Groks.
1: Welcome back to Berkeley Grocks. I'm Frank Lang. And,
0: <coughs> and I guess that makes me Charles Lee. How you doing Frank?
1: Not too bad, not too bad. Looks like you got a little cold there, huh?
0: Yeah, well it's uh, I'm always having a cold when uh, I'm ready to talk about science. My body just gets so excited that it's it's fighting off all the all the germs and the dangers.
1: Even you don't get sweaty?
0: i get a little sweaty i get i get a little nervous
1: and let me ask you is your uh, sweat is it clear or is it uh, kind of that gatorade uh color you know orangish
0: it it has a sort of uh, i like the purple the grape gatorade so i think it comes out a little more purple oddly enough it it also comes through the digestive tract almost intact as well wow which worried me at one point but <laughs>
1: <laughs> but if you're wondering a uh, hippos actually sweat brownish
0: they sweat brownish Yes. okay
1: So initially the uh, substance that comes out is clear, but after oxidizing the air, it starts to turn red and then polymerizes and turns into this brown pigment.
0: Oh, I see. So does this help it, uh, I guess, act as sort of natural sunscreen or something?
1: Actually, you're right. Oh. Uh, natural sunscreen and natural antibiotic. Oh, wow. Yeah, so I guess in chemistry, we know that these uh, colored structures often have rings in them. Pigments usually have ring structures in their uh, molecules. Oh, so the,
0: the connections of the different molecules are arranged in a ring.
1: Right, and they, uh, these rings can absorb UV light very, very well. Oh, I see. So as a result, it protects you from uh, UV light and uh, skin cancer.
0: Right, and uh, I guess a lot of antibiotics have... Similar types of multi-ring structures as well.
1: Right, right. Yeah, so scientists yes. are pretty excited because it's indication that your sweat can uh, protect you. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I'll have to remember that next time, I guess.
1: Yeah, and well. don't worry if it starts to turn brown or purple. Uh,
0: I, I hadn't been worried before, but I guess now I'm grateful. In fact.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so this was actually reported in a recent issue of Nature. A uh, work carried out by Kimiko Hashimoto from Kyoto Pharmaceutical University. <laughs>
0: Okay, Frank, uh, well, have people ever uh, characterized you as charming?
1: I don't know, probably a little bit gawky when I was young, but (laughs) I'm trying to outgrow it these days. All right,
0: I'm I'm not sure if that's related to charming, but how about strange?
1: Strange. Uh, definitely
0: so. Mm, how about charmingly strange?
1: Ooh, I think that, that hits it on the nail, basically.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I think for us all, really. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, in fact, there's a particle in nature, the a sort of charmingly strange particle that's just been found and is confounding researchers, particle physicists.
1: Are you talking about quarks here, or?
0: Yes. In fact, uh, it's uh, there. I guess as we know, there's six type of quarks: the right. up, down, top, bottom, and charm and strange. Uh, there's also a bunch of anti quarks, which are mm-hmm. basically the antimatter equivalent. Right. Uh, so researchers have been uh, Uh, combining these different quarks in uh, different ways uh, for a a number of years. In fact, they've created a new type of quark which has a uh, heavier charm quark and a uh, lighter strange anti-quark.
1: Man, I, I'm not sure about the screwing around with nature stuff, though.
0: <laughs> you know, I mean, what would you have them like uh, recombine uh, horse? Uh, <laughs> I don't know what.
2: <laughs>
0: where I was going with that one. But anyway, so <laughs> it turns out that in fact uh, when they recombine the charm and the lighter strange anti quark, that uh, they get a slightly uh, less heavy version than th- what they expected.
1: I mean, were we talking something on the order of a proton neutron coming out from this combination?
0: Yeah, so actually that was their original uh, expectation that you could just model the. These two types of this sort of uh, structure as something like a proton and electron, mm-hmm. and it would weigh about as much. Right. But so it's just suggesting that when you combine these two, somehow the mass goes missing. Is probably being combined as energy somehow to hold it together. Wow. Uh, Or at least that's the expectation. They don't really know. And, uh, in fact, uh, William Bardeen, a theorist at Fermilab, uh, says that, in fact, this exotic new combination of two quarks and two antiquarks could uh, shed new light, I guess, on theories of uh, particle physics.
1: That is indeed strange. Indeed.
0: (laughs) It's charmingly strange. So this is uh, quite interesting work, and it was uh, carried out. This was uh, fascinating work carried out at Fermi National Accelerator Laboratory, Fermilab, of course, and published in the Physical Review Letters. (laughs)
1: All right, Charles, so did you watch Mighty Mouse when you were growing up? Oh, I
0: I watched it religiously. I think I I even had, like, a Mighty Mouse uh, stool, like, you know, a little thing to sit on.
1: Yeah, he was a charmingly strange character,
0: huh? Uh, Among other things, in fact, uh, quite powerful. I think he could beat up Superman, in my opinion.
1: That's what I thought, too, and in fact, he might be coming to life. He might. Yes, in the form of a human, a Superboy.
0: (laughs) I thought we already had Superboy. Wasn't he like uh, the son of Superman or something?
1: But um, there's a German kid who uh, reportedly can hold three kilograms of weight in each hand when his arm's outstretched and he's only four years old. That's quite impressive. (laughs) (laughs) Scientists studying him have found that he has a mutation uh, in the gene that produces the protein myostatin.
0: Okay, and this is uh, involved somehow in the uh, muscle...
1: uh... Right, one of the muscle proteins. Right. And because of this mutation, he grows these abnormally huge muscles. Uh, There's pictures of him on the web and he looks pretty mighty.
0: Wow. Well, this, this could be useful, I guess, for him to hold the good, great big beer steins when he, <laughs> when he grows up. When he's ready, right? Yeah.
1: Precocious, huh? Uh,
0: amazingly precocious. I guess he could be the next uh, governor of California with that kind <laughs> of uh, pedigree.
1: They've actually observed similar effects in mice, actually, previously. Okay. This is the first time they've observed it in a human.
0: Oh, and he just sort of naturally had this uh, mutation that uh, natural mutation. gave him super strength.
1: The good application for this is you can find ways of curing degenerative muscle diseases that we already have, uh-huh. but there's potential for abuse in the uh, athletes. Well, i
0: I want superhuman strength to open the door, I guess. <laughs> I'm weak. <laughs>
1: so I guess if anyone wants to know more, they can um, go to the June 23rd edition of New Scientists and it's everywhere on the web as well.
0: You know, I think I, I figured out another uh, advantage to having those super muscles that the superboy does, really? It's of course attracting members of the opposite sex,
1: ooh, brawn really does help huh? <laughs> i I can
0: imagine what do you use to attract uh, the members of the fairer sex or the better sex? I guess it depends.
1: I haven't been so advanced to figure that out <laughs> <I> out, <don't> yet. <laughs>
0: Well, <laughs> your your reticence says it all, but I, I I think I have an answer for you. I guess uh, researchers at uh, Concordia University in Montreal, and uh, listen up, guys, they found out that there's a critical uh, pituitary gland hormone called alpha-melanocyte-stimulating hormone that apparently is very important for uh, sexual arousal in females.
1: Well, you, you know, I didn't know the pituitary gland was that useful. <laughs> I thought it only made one or two hormones.
0: See, and, and you thought all that was required was, in fact, just, you know, intelligent talk and, of course, being charming. Uh, you just had needed to stimulate the pituitary, it seems.
1: That's it's all about chemistry. I guess, huh? <laughs> it's
0: all about chemistry. Uh, so it's interesting because uh, you know while men can turn to Viagra or other pills or potions to uh, cure their uh, dysfunctions, uh, women, of course, who are suffering from some sort of uh, uh, libido dysfunctions, of course, have nothing really to turn to. Uh, I guess this research, which was recently published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, uh, suggests that in fact it may offer a potential treatment to um, 30% of women out there who are experiencing sexual dysfunction.
1: It, it really is has a chemical basis to it, then, huh? Yeah,
0: well, that's uh, at least what they're suggesting, and. Um, it's, uh, I guess, as one University of Cambridge researcher, Joseph Herbert, says, uh, one of the first studies to actually show two components of uh, female sexuality. So again, this was uh, fun research, and it was published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences.
1: Oh, our favorite journal.
0: And, and of course, somehow apropos. Yeah. Penis. And the researcher was James Spouse.
1: And that's all for a look at current developments in the world of science this week. This is Berkeley Garage you're listening to here on 90.7 FM. In a few moments, Mark Rose joins us to talk about Secrets of Ancient Egypt and Secrets of the Maya. So stay tuned. Welcome back to Berkeley Grocks. Joining us on this week's show is a very special guest, Mr. Mark Rose from Archaeology Magazine, and he's going to tell us a little bit about some of the new book that's coming out about ancient civilizations. Uh, Mr. Rose, thanks for joining us on Berkeley Grocks Day. Good to be here, Frank. Tell us, what are these books that have been coming out recently? Well, we have
3: two out. One is on uh, ancient Egypt, Uh and the other is on the Maya world, and uh, there's lots going on in both areas.
1: So, what has been the most significant discovery or development in these two cultures? From an archaeological standpoint,
3: well, I think actually one of the more interesting bits of research being done in the Maya world mm-hmm. isn't with ancient ruins, but actually with modern people throughout Mesoamerica. There were different variations of a ball game that uh-huh. was played, and you know, depending upon the situation, maybe the losers were sacrificed. Things like that happened. But there are still some scattered people in western and north northwestern Mexico who play today versions of the same Mesoamerican ball game. And and to me that, that's just fascinating. And one of the uh, chapters in, in the book we have on the Maya uh, talks about these modern ball players. And it's using a uh, heavy latex ball and bouncing it off hips. Which to me is just mind-boggling how you could do that, but little kids are still doing it, uh, and girls as well as boys. So it's quite fascinating.
1: So baseball has been a longer tradition in America than we thought, huh?
3: One of the things, and it's it's sort of humorous, it, it's sort of uh, depressing. But when Cortez went back to Spain, one of the things he took with him was an entire team of ball players to show off at the Spanish court. It's it's a very very old sport, and it, it's good that it's still still living.
1: What other aspects of their culture have concerned the ages? Well, there's, there's quite a bit.
3: There's quite a bit of religion that continues. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's quite a bit of, of architecture. Uh,
1: if you travel in, in
3: uh, Yucatan, for example, uh, you can see thatched houses that look just like the thatched houses that appear in, in Maya sculptural release. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, they might have a TV antenna sticking out of the top. <laughs> so there's a lot of tradition, but the sort of negotiation with the present. And, and the language continues as well. Worked some years ago in a actually a Habitat for Humanity project in uh, the highlands of, of Guatemala mm-hmm. and the people there look like Maya they speak speak a Maya language, and you think to yourself, well, the Spanish conquest might not have got too far here.
1: And who exactly are these Mayas? Are they originally uh, of Asian ancestry, or are they somehow uh, diverged from the, uh, the human tree? Yeah,
3: like all Native Americans, they came over at some point, well, the earliest date we have is around 13,000 for people coming over the uh, Bering Land Bridge that was then exposed, coming over from Asia, and then spreading throughout the Americas. So
1: the Mayas are well known for uh, human sacrifice, do they still remain Or have they exist In some other form Perhaps these days
3: No they, they don't remain There were At the time of contact And uh, a bit later Well there are actual records In, in Yucatan And uh, of people being Sacrificed in, in Cenotes Cenotes are these uh, Sinkholes Sort of collapse caves That are used As water sources But we're also seen As other caves were As entryways Into the Into Chibaba The Maya underworld And people were Occasionally thrown in the cenotes as, as sacrifices. And, and there are records that the Spanish had when they were taking down evidence uh, against perpetrators of these, not today, but a couple of centuries ago still.
1: And the Maya are also known for their uh, the handicraft, especially with their uh, gold work. Have that survived well throughout the centuries?
3: What I admire most about Maya, if you, if you want to talk about the craftsmanship and so forth, is the pottery. It's just very well done uh, in, in the sense of the, the technical quality of it, and also in terms of conveying aspects of their world, their cosmos. There's the symbols and different headdresses. It, it's, it's very different from anything Western.
1: Mm-hmm. So uh, let's move on to uh, Egypt. What are the latest developments over there? One of the best sites. It's not well known.
3: It's not known like uh, the Valley of the Kings or the Pyramids at Giza.
1: Mm-hmm. But
3: there's a site called Herakonpolis, the Greek name based on the Egyptian name. It's the city of the hawk, and it was had uh, one of the falcon god, Horus, was the, the patron deity. At Herakonpolis, Rene Friedman has been excavating for, for years. And last year, this is in the book, also on our website, uh, at archaeology.org they found very early mummies but they found an elephant berry from around 3100 3200 I think Uh BC apparently there was some cloth wrapped around it they weren't certain what cloth but it's sort of an extraordinary find people have found remains of exotic animals baboons and so forth early Egyptian cemeteries before but never a whole elephant what the elephant was it a pet was it uh, symbolic of a king his sort of animal totem don't quite no, The latter is, is possible. A lot of the early Egyptian kings have names that are based on animals. Scorpion is one. Narmer, who supposedly unified Egypt. His name is, actually, Narmer is a combination of the words for catfish and chisel. <laughs> Maybe there was a king elephant.
1: So the war in the Middle East, has that affect any of the excavation sites uh, around Egypt? Not
3: around Egypt, no. There's more tension when you get into Palestine and Israel and there's been concern about the uh, the barrier or the wall, whatever you want to call it, that mm-hmm. Israel's been putting up. Apparently last fall, construction of that damaged a, a Byzantine monastery or the ruins of a Byzantine monastery. Uh, so some people have been concerned about that and there are, and there are probably fewer people excavating in that area than mm-hmm. in years past. Egypt is still friendly and welcoming and, and there's no reason not, not to go there if someone is inclined to do so. Well,
1: what site would you- do you recommend the most you know the must see site when you go to Egypt right now
3: well there are three things that you have to do and number one is well they're all number one <laughs> um, the pyramids and the Sphinx at Giza are extraordinary. The Cairo Museum, which is now just a, a bit over uh, 100 years old, has got just fantastic stuff in it. There's there's no comparable collection. That's where you'll find. Uh, well, I guess actually a lot of the Tut material is now is now traveling. But there are other discoveries that are the equivalent, and you may not know of them by name, but they're well worth having a look at. And and the third is is the Valley of the Kings Mm -hmm. down in Luxor and and the temples of uh, Luxor and Karnak, Uh, just extraordinary.
1: I guess the last issue I wanted to touch upon was um, preservation of these uh, archaeological sites and artifacts. What has been going on in terms of, say, the UN for protecting these sites and the policies and technologies which are involved?
3: The most important development in terms of, of all of that isn't necessarily with one funding agency or one new technique, but more with a complete revamping of the Egyptian archaeological administration. Uh, the man in charge there now is Zahi Hawass, and you see him all over the place, uh, on TV, making announcements, so forth. Uh, and, and some people might think, well, he's just a showman, but that's that's hardly the case. Uh, he's instituted broad reforms and making education and Archaeological awareness, uh, a key part of Egyptian education, not just in terms of, of educating new archaeologists but also in terms of the general public uh, so that they'll have a greater awareness of the importance and, and be more supportive of the preservation of the ancient monuments in Egypt. So he's very forward-looking forward and, and developing an infrastructure for preservation that hasn't really existed in Egypt before now.
1: What are the threats to um, these sites? Is it perhaps the, you know, changing weather conditions or is it looters or um, some other factors?
3: Well, you have, you have looters. Uh, there was just a big case in New York uh, a, a bit more than a year ago where a dealer was uh, sentenced to almost three years in prison for trafficking in stolen Egyptian uh, artifacts. So there is there is looting, there is weather and just the natural deterioration of things, and then uh, tourists in some situations can be a problem. Just too many tourists seeing the same thing. And to deal with that, what they're doing is is a number of things. They will rotate which of the pyramids at Giza is open to the public. So it's not, the stress isn't all all on one monument.
4: They're opening up
3: more sites to more evenly distribute the number of tourists. And they're opening up more museums. uh, And museums where you might not Expect them to be, for instance they're they're doing one at el Sheikh, which is best known for its coral reefs it's, uh, on the Red Sea a resort there, uh, but they're opening a museum there so people can you know be attracted and see the and see the uh, antiquities there as well as the main sites, the Giza. Valley of the Kings and so forth. And in the valley, they're also taking a look at the possibility of making exact recreations of some of the tombs. They did this. There's an exhibit now in uh, traveling around the country, Quest for Immortality, which is based on material from Egypt. And one of the exhibits in that show is an exact duplicate of uh, the tomb chamber of, of Tutmos. I think it's the IV. And it's down to the millimeter, or less than millimeter, uh, with all the, the painting, scenes from the Book of the Dead, and so forth.
2: Mm.
3: And they're looking at that as a possible way to go with some of the tombs in the Valley of the Kings. It's a confined space, and even the tourists exhaling uh, the carbon dioxide, you know, combines with moisture in the air mm-hmm. and makes carbonic acid, which can eventually destroy the painting. Uh they're doing lots of stuff combating the antiquities traders. They're looking at at how to best handle tourism, and the future actually looks pretty good. There's there's a lot going on that's going in the right direction now, and, and to a large extent that is uh, on account of Zahi Hawass taking charge.
1: Uh Mr. Rose, uh, thanks for your perspectives today, and thanks for joining us on Berkeley Grocks. Oh, you're welcome, Frank. Alright, and we were just talking to Mark Rose, editor of Archaeology Magazine. And to find more about the ancient civilizations, you can check out their books, Secrets of Ancient Egypt and Secrets of the Maya, at Barnes and Noble's Amazon and your local bookstore. To find out more about their organization, check out their website at www.archaeology.org. This is Berkeley You're listening to here on 90.7 FM. In a few moments, find out how your smoke detector works, so stay right here.
0: Welcome back to Berkeley Grox, only here on 90.7 FM KALX. Well, have you ever wondered how smoke detectors work? You can find out on this week's edition of Everyday Science.
4: Ever wonder how smoke detectors work? The answer can be found in Everyday Science. There are a variety of smoke alarms to choose from, but today we're going to talk about the ionizing kind because it's the most common. We'll start by lighting a fire in this waste paper basket. Then we'll just pop into the smoke detector on the ceiling above it. Watch your head. It's kinda cramped in here. Do you see that small square box over there? It's a chamber that contains a tiny piece of radioactive material. That radioactive material is electrically charging the nitrogen and oxygen atoms that are in the chamber's air. These electrically charged atoms are called ions. Once the air in here is ionized, it's able to conduct an electric current. So all it takes is a little voltage to create a continuous electrical current. Now, as the fire in the waste paper basket smolders away, its smoke starts to rise (coughs) and (coughs) eventually makes its way into the smoke detector. (coughs) As the smoke particles waft into this chamber, they attach themselves to the ions. As the ions become heavier, the flow of the electrical current is reduced. That's what you're hearing now. But don't worry. This change doesn't go unnoticed. See, there's also a microchip within the smoke detector. Once it senses a drop in the current strength, it promptly responds by... ...switching on the alarm. That's why when people say you need an alarm, they're not just blowing smoke. Thanks for being a part of Everyday Science. Everyday Science is part of Bayer Corporation's National Education Program, Making Science Make Sense.
1: Man, don't they say that there's smoke or there's fire?
0: I I, I suppose so. I'm just wondering if those detectors can detect the flame in my heart that burns for the Everyday Science lady.
1: It burns. Mm. And this is Forrest with the answer to last week's question of the week, what do koalas eat? Well, koalas, they like eucalyptus, and that's what they eat.
0: Ooh, yeah. Thanks a lot there, Forrest. That was damn cool. It's the Doctor of Soul, baby. And now we're here to do one more thing. Do it to me one more time. My question this week is, I love fish. But man, how do them fish breathe? I just don't know. Well, if you know or just think you know, you can email us here at grox at hotmail.com. You're not going to win anything, but ooh, maybe you'll be
1: swimming with the fishes. And that's off of this week's edition of Berkeley Grox.
0: Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology.
1: If you'd like to contact us here at Berkeley Grox, you can email us at grox at hotmail.com. For Berkeley Grox, I'm Frank Ling.
0: And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grox.net. Have a great afternoon and stay tuned for more music with your host, Katie.